Good morning. The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 23. That's Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 23. And in the Red Pew Bibles, that's page 871. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. Amen. Good morning. Thank you, Lois. Beautifully read as always. Let me just open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you that we can gather and read your word. As we look at the life of this man of your word, I pray that you will illuminate our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that we can learn from both his strengths and his weaknesses, that we could be conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, uh, Pastor Greg started uh, a new series on Peter's first letter, and he gave us a really helpful overview of its contents and of what we can look forward to. Today, we're going to spend a bit of time looking at the human author of that letter, the Apostle Peter. We're going to look at what kind of man he was, the good and the bad, and how he was changed and how he was used by God as a channel of great blessing to the early church and beyond including, of course, as an author of Scripture. And crucially, we're going to look at how we can apply the lessons we learn from Peter in our lives and culture today. Well, I wonder what you think of when you think of the Apostle Peter, when you hear his name. What comes to mind? How would you describe him? I have to say that I really like reading about Peter because, to me, he's, he's something of an action man. He's the kind of character who likes to get things done. And as we will see, that could be a source 
of great strength. It's one of the things that made him a natural leader. But at other times, it could be a great weakness and a great liability. It was a strong trait that he had to learn to temper. And the tempering process would prove very, very painful for him. The scripture that Lois just read for us, I think, is a, a wonderful, succinct summary of this man's strengths and weaknesses in his early character. We'll come back to that in just a little while. But first, let me just tell you a little bit about the background to Peter himself, a bit about his character and environment. His Hebrew name was Simeon. And like many Jews at the time, it seems he adopted a Greek version, which in this case is Simon. As we read, his father was Jonah in verse 17. Just to clarify, not the prophet Jonah. He was a lot earlier, so not the prophet. He was married, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, we read that he used to take his wife along with him on his missionary journeys. Perhaps that's actually a bit of a challenge for the Roman Catholics, as they insist on a celibate priesthood, and they claim Peter as their first pope. Well, if it was good enough for Peter, what's the problem now? He had a brother called Andrew. They worked as fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, and that's where they were both called to follow Jesus. That's in Matthew chapter 4. Andrew had previously introduced him to Jesus in John chapter 1, and it's in that chapter that Jesus gives him the name Peter. You are Simon, son of John, Jonas, the father's Aramaic name, you will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Cephas is the Aramaic form of the Greek Peter, and both mean stone. It was a kind of nickname. John MacArthur suggests that perhaps Jesus gave him that name to remind him of what he should be. By nature, he was inclined to jump in quickly and dynamically, but he didn't always follow through more like a flash of lightning than a rock, perhaps. And he comments that Jesus often called him Peter when he was commending him, and Simon when he was indicating that he was behaving like his old self and acting in the flesh. We know that Peter spoke Aramaic with a strong country accent, and that's what gave him away as a follower of Jesus when he denied him in the courtyard. Just a little bit about the languages as well. Aramaic and Greek are very different now, Aramaic is a Semitic language, and Greek is European, so they are very unalike. It's a bit like English and teenage text typing today, pretty much mutually incomprehensible to each other. Well, we see from the Gospel narratives as well that the Apostle John knew Peter very well. They were friends, business associates, and neighbours. And interestingly, in the Gospel, John refers to his friend 15 times as Simon Peter, so if MacArthur's idea is correct, perhaps that could be because John couldn't make up his mind which name to use. Knowing Peter so well, he so often saw both sides of his character. Academically, Peter was uneducated and untrained. So when he and John stood before the high priest and the other Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 4, those leaders are amazed at the confidence and the boldness in which they proclaim the gospel of Christ. So that's just a flavor of the background for this apostle. And I guess the first point for us to note and take away today really is this. He was normal. He was a regular guy. There was nothing outwardly special or remarkable about him when Jesus called him to follow him. <clears throat> he was a coarse fisherman. 
He was a sinful man. He makes that admission himself in Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And actually, looking at the other apostles as well, most of them weren't known for being politically astute or highly educated or wealthy or academic high achievers. Not all of them, but most of them were similar to Peter in these regards. One commentator joked, said, jokingly said that if you look at the apostles' CVs at the start of the ministry and think about who's going to be the standout star performer, you'd have to conclude that Judas Iscariot would be one of the favourites. How many times do we see that God does not judge as we do? We are so often taken in by the external, so often memorised by what we can see. But God sees the heart. God sees the potential. Think of Gideon and what a start to this great warrior's journey, hiding in a winepress. Or Abraham. Or David, the greatest of the Jews' earthly kings. He was the youngest brother, not even considered for the role of king when the prophet Samuel was sent to anoint God's to anoint one of Jesse's sons to rule as king. His other brothers looked far more impressive. Even Samuel the prophet thought so. When Eliab was brought before him, he thought to himself, this must be the one. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. He looked the part, but he wasn't. And David, the youngest of the brothers, was thought so inconsequential, he'd been forgotten completely overlooked he was still out in the fields looking after the sheep he was a no-hoper a non-starter seven of his apparently better suited brothers were considered none of them were accepted by God nobody even thought it was worth the effort to call David to see if he could be the one it's only when all his brothers have been rejected and Samuel asked Jesse the father are these all your sons that is even thought of Well, there's the youngest one, David, but he's just outside looking after the sheep. But he was the one. Read about that in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So perhaps today, sat here or listening to this message online, you know what it is to feel inadequate or forgotten or ill-equipped, unworthy even. God can't use me. There's nothing special about me. Maybe you don't have a job or any all levels, or whatever the equivalent is now. Maybe you're struggling with an illness, or a life situation that just seems to cripple you. If that's you, listen, listen. There is no limit to what God can do with you and your life if you will determine to faithfully follow and serve him. Just look at Peter. And the Bible and church history are full of countless other examples of how God has used seemingly weak, insignificant, overlooked people to make great advances for his glory in his kingdom. Flawed people, and Peter is just one classic example. So never let what you think of as a low position in life or a lack of some kind of ability or quality stop you from serving wholeheartedly. Success does not depend on our strength, but on God's grace, on his empowering presence. And God will always give us the grace for whatever he calls us to do. Always. He will never leave us high and dry. Hebrews 13.5 is just one example of the many scriptures that testify to that. I will never leave you nor abandon you. 
There is another side to this point, though. Because if you're thinking, if you know, you have been gifted specially in some way, with wealth, strength, influence, intelligence, whatever it is, then be careful. Thank God for his gifts. Use them and enjoy them appropriately. Serve others. But please beware of the constant temptation, the constant danger of pride. Beware of the temptation to rely on yourself and not on God. There's a really clear warning that we're given in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. From verse 26, it says this. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It doesn't say not any, but not many. So if this is you, enjoy using your gifts. Use them wisely, but always stay humble. So our first point, Peter was normal. He was a working class man with no great education or position, and God used him greatly, and he can use you and me greatly as well in his grace, in his anointing power. Secondly, Peter was bold, but he could also be rash and impetuous, couldn't he? And there is a world of difference between those two positions. Someone once described him in his early days as a ready-fire-aim kind of disciple. And we see it in today's reading, don't we? It's classic Peter. We see both sides. He starts so well. Verse 16, he gives us this wonderful, open, bold, confident statement. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I mean, they must all have been wondering who Jesus really was. By the time we get here, they've seen miracles. They've heard a lot of Jesus' teaching. But Peter is the one who takes the initiative. He's the one that steps out in faith. When Jesus asks him that direct and most important question that any of us will ever answer. Verse 15. Who do you say that I am? And our answer to that question, just like Peter's, has an eternal ramification. Peter, as he so often did, he takes the lead. He knows the truth. He knows the only right answer. Jesus is not just a prophet, a good teacher, a good man. God has opened his heart to the truth and he acts on it. Clearly, publicly, without any equivocation. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And we get this wonderful commendation as a result. Verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And that commission in verses 18 to 19, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Just to to go off a tangent from Peter a little bit here, it's worth spending a few moments to clarify what actually Jesus meant by the rock on which the church is built, and this binding and loosing. Many of you will know that Catholics do use this text to claim that Peter himself was that rock and that his apostolic successors, subsequent popes as they see it, all have the same authority as well. But that's not what's happening here. The word used for Peter is Petros, which can mean a small stone. 
And the word used for rock is Petra, which means a foundation stone or a boulder or a cliff or a ledge, something big, huge and solid. So Jesus is just using a play on words here to say that out of this small stone, Peter, has come this foundational stone, this truth, this confession, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And that is the rock on which the church is built. Jesus and he alone is the foundation and head of his church. Numerous scriptures make that abundantly clear. If you want to jot some down here now and check them out later, have a look at Acts chapter 4, 11 to 12, 1 Corinthians 3, 11, Ephesians 2, 20 and 21, Ephesians 5, 23, and there are many others as well. Christ did not go through what he went through. He did not suffer as he suffered to give any man primacy over his church. He and he alone is the foundation and the head. And the authority to bind and loose in verse 19 is not an authority to determine what is right and wrong, to make infallible pronouncements or rulings independently. The Bible and the Bible alone is our source of ultimate authority. And binding and loosing here actually is related to church discipline, dealing with sin in the church. If you look just two chapters later in Matthew 18, 18, you'll see the very same authority is given to every disciple, to all the disciples. That's the context in which this authority is given. So I hope that explains those verses a little bit and helps to put them into context. To come back to the main point now, the essence of Peter's declaration is this. It was heartfelt, a full, committed proclamation of Christ as Lord and Saviour, as the Messiah. You know, here this morning, the application for us really is quite simple, isn't it? Can we say the same? It's not a question about, you know, whether our knowledge of him is perfect or if we serve him without fail. None of us do, and we'll come to Peter's failings in a little while. But as Alan asked earlier, do we know him? Do we love Jesus and Lord and Saviour? And do we confess him like that? Do we see Christ the same way that Peter did here? Can we stand with Peter as he makes this bold, clear declaration and confession? Because that is the kind of faith that is pleasing to God. And we cannot please him without it, whatever else we do. And you know, it has to be the real Jesus as well. We have made this point before. It is worth repeating There are so many false Jesuses peddled today. The one who is just one way to God. The one who will never judge. The one who sits patiently by as people mock him, insult him, live godless lives, use his name as a profanity, and then either try to blame him or manipulate him when disaster strikes. If we want to know the real Jesus, the only one who can save us from hell, the only one who can give us eternal life, we must know the Jesus of the Bible. Anything else, anyone else, is idolatry. And again, as we heard earlier, it's not enough to know about him. We have to know him from the heart, like Peter did. That's the essence of his great declaration in these verses. Doesn't he start so well? What a great, confident declaration. He's riding high, but then, verses 21 to 23, from the heights, he plums the depths. Jesus explains he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. That doesn't fit in with Peter's plans, his ideas. He's got an idea how everything should work out, and that certainly isn't it. He wants Jesus to follow his plan. 
And verse 22, incredibly, he even rebukes the Lord. Oh, this will never happen to you. His attempt to change Jesus' mission earns him one of the most stinging rebukes in the Bible. From the lofty commendation he's just received to get behind me, Satan. I'm, wow. He's serving as a mouthpiece for Satan. He's trying to derail Christ from his God-given mission. And isn't it a good job he didn't succeed? How does this apply to us? Maybe we think, I'd never do that. I've got my faults, but I'd never follow Peter in that. How often in our prayers do we try to bend God to our will, to our way? Lord, you've got to do this for me. Lord, I'm naming it and claiming it. Lord, I've got to have that job. I've got to have that person for a spouse. Lord, it's time for this suffering to stop. This is what you must do. If you love me, Lord, if you're really there, this is what will happen. That is to have the same attitude as Peter. As if our way could possibly be better than the way of the sovereign Lord of the whole universe. Again, how differently we so often see things from the way the Lord sees them. And how many of us actually can look back and thank God that he didn't give us what we wanted sometimes. Even if it meant we went through a time of suffering and pain. Isn't that when we find out how genuine our faith really is? When we don't get what we want. When it hurts. When it's hard. Isn't that when we pray more? Dive into the Bible more deeply? Value fellowship more? Isn't that when our witness is at its strongest to those around us? We heard that earlier from Tom. True discipleship involves following Christ and doing his will wherever that path may lead, whatever the cost may be. And it is not without cost. We are to take up our crosses daily and follow him, to die to self so that we can enjoy the fullness of life in Christ, which is way better than the passing fleeting pleasures of this world. You know, like many of us in his early years as a disciple, Peter was capable of great expressions of faith, but also of great error. He had strongly held ideas about how things should be. You know, one of our key takeaways here this morning is to remember again that God's ways are often very different from the ways that we would choose. And it's to love him and trust him when that proves to be the case. Not with a blind hope, but knowing that his plan is to prosper us and not to harm us. Knowing that the cross is the way to the fullness of life, to eternal joy. It is to submit to his will and not to try to make him submit to ours. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 are memory verses for many of us. We know the limitations of our understanding. We know that life sometimes doesn't turn out as we would desire it to do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Verse is well worth committing to memory sometimes. Even if we can't see it, even when it hurts, his way is infinitely better than anything we would naturally choose. Well, thirdly, Peter was courageous. He was courageous. And it might surprise some that I say that. I mean, this is one of the apostles, isn't it, who abandoned Jesus in his hour of greatest need. 
It's the one who, having sworn he'd stand by him no matter what, even if all the others fall away, he wouldn't. He'll be solid. He's the one who made that proud boast and then went on three times to deny, even knowing the Lord, cursing and swearing. I don't even know this man you're talking about, Mark 14, 71. Shaken to his core, terrified by a question from a servant girl. And you know, I think it's telling as well that he denied Jesus three times. You know, once or twice, and he might have rationalized it. I was caught off guard. I'd get it right if I was ready. I'd be prepared. But three times tells us and told him, no, you wouldn't. You folded and folded completely. And when Jesus looked at him after he'd done that, it cut into the soul. It's in Luke 22. He had courage. He had physical courage. When Jesus was arrested, he's the one that drew a sword. And he used it. Not very well. He cut off an ear, aiming for a head, surely. But he fought. Imagine how outnumbered there must have been. He got out of the boat and walked on water. Briefly. Before his faith failed. Well, where were the others? They didn't even get that far. The problem was in those early days, his courage was misplaced because his confidence was in himself, in his own strength. And that is never enough. We touched on that earlier. The moment we start to depend on our own strength, our own courage, our own gifts or our own talents, that is the moment we become ripe for fall. And Satan will do all he can to ensure that is exactly what happens. That's what happened with Peter. He'd been warned. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus warns him, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He didn't listen. Two verses later, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He didn't listen. He didn't heed the warning. And he fell. That's a lesson Peter had to learn. And it was a very, very painful one for him. After betraying Jesus, he went out and wept bitterly. Well, perhaps today you know what it is, what it looks like, what it feels like to fall. You too have wept when you considered what you did or failed to do. Perhaps like Peter, you began so full of hope and life and confidence. You were so committed. But then it happened. The fall came and it's always there. And regret is your constant visitor. If that is you, I hope you're encouraged by this. Jesus knew Peter would fall. He knew it. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter would be restored. He would be forgiven. He would be recommissioned. He would learn. He would go on to serve faithfully. He would again be useful in the kingdom of God. And that's true for us as well, isn't it? For you and me. When we are faithless, God remains faithful. His love never fails. Don't let your fall stop you from getting up and going on. It will take faith and courage to do so. But you can do it. God will give you the grace. That's what Peter found. Exactly that. Think of the courage he needed to face the apostles again. After what he'd done. He had to face the Lord again, and he did it. So if you know what it is to weep over your sin, confess it, repent, get up, go on. It is not the end. 
His grace is sufficient. His blood has paid the debt fully. That's the core of our gospel, isn't it? Surely for all of us. This is why Jesus came. That's the whole point of the gospel. There is so much we can learn from Peter here. One of the key lessons we take away from this, though, is our need to be committed and courageous, but not presumptuous and rash, to trust in God's strength and not ours. Peter was restored, he went on, but now he knew he needed a different type of courage, one born of humility and obedience. And that's the next point. You know, fourthly, Peter learned humility and obedience, and he had to learn it, just as Paul had to learn what it was to be content with much or with little, another apostle. In Mark 9.33, excuse me, Mark 9.33 onwards, we have a very embarrassing episode for the apostles. Uh, Peter's with them, they're walking along and arguing, and Jesus asks them, what is it you're arguing about as we go along? Well, you can imagine the scene, there must have been much close studying of toenails and sandal straps they'd been arguing about who was the greatest we've already seen that peter thought he was the one he was the one who would stand no matter what and here he is with them arguing in the presence of jesus about who is the greatest what a change we see in him later Greg, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to steal a little bit of your thunder here, but it's from chapter 5 in 1 Peter. So by the time we get there, I'm sure we'll appreciate a reminder. In the first verse of that chapter, you know, Peter is telling men how to shepherd the flock. Now think of his position, preeminent amongst the apostles. But he doesn't command or lay down roles. He simply exhorts as an elder. As one of the inner circle of three, as an apostle, he could have, he could have commanded He just simply exhorts as a fellow elder. You see the change. This simple exhortation in verse 6 of that chapter, he writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. What a change. There's so much in this, but I'm not going to stand on Greg's toes anymore. Suffice it to say, he learnt humility. And that humility showed itself in faithful obedience. He went from arguing with the other apostles about who was the greatest to humbly serving as he had been commanded to do. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this much before, but have you noticed that when Peter is recommissioned by Christ, the risen Lord tells him something quite astonishing. He tells him that he's going to suffer and that he's going to be a martyr. It's in John 21, 18 to 19. Truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted bit of a free spirit when you grow old you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go he said this to indicate by what kind of death peter would glorify god after saying this he told him follow me well that's a great restoration isn't it we picked up on that earlier but did you notice that despite everything despite the fact that peter unquestionably loves the lord Despite the fact he's standing before him in his resurrected state, despite the fact he will see the ascension, do miracles in Jesus' name, write scripture, despite all those things, when his time of martyrdom comes, he will not want to go. You will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. I find that incredibly refreshing and honest. It's encouraging. Many of us, I'm sure, have wondered, 
what would I do? How would I handle it, really? The persecution, the threat of death. I know we would pray for the grace to be bold and courageous and joyful even. And haven't we heard countless testimonies of men and women who've done exactly that? That's just not always the case. Peter would not want to go. Jesus did not want to go to his cross. Luke twenty-two forty-two. Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. I don't think that's an empty prayer. I think he knew what was going to happen. But he did go. For you and me, Christ went. The perfect model of humble obedience, even when it cost everything. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And that kind of humble obedience is what Peter had to learn as well. He'd failed. And which of us hasn't? We confess and repent. We receive grace and we go on knowing we are forgiven. That's what Peter did. Some years ago, I read about Thomas Bilner. He was a preacher in 16th century England at a time when it was incredibly dangerous to preach from the Bible. He did so. He was arrested and threatened with execution. And under great pressure, he recanted his faith and he was released. But like Peter, he could not overcome the remorse and guilt he felt for his betrayal, for his apostasy. And for two years, he lived as an utterly miserable, guilty man. He did what we've just been talking about. He confessed, he repented, and he obeyed, and he preached again. He was rearrested, tried for heresy, this time stayed the course. And he was burnt at the stake in Norwich on the 19th of August, 1531. You know, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. You're in the right place. But you might be thinking, well, this isn't a very good sell. I mean, come on. Suffering and death burnt at the stake. Why would anybody go through that? What's the point? Thomas Bilney is now enjoying his eternal reward. And what impact did his suffering and death have? Only eternity will reveal that in full. But here's just one thing that came out of it. After witnessing his death, Richard Nix, the bishop who'd arranged for his rearrest, said, I now fear I have burned Abel and let Cain go. What happened to Thomas Bilney was evil. But he died a happy and confident man. He found he could not be happy unless and until he was obedient. Can I ask you today, do you want to be happy and content? Do you want to be confident in the face of life and death? I mean, that's what everybody wants, isn't it? We will never be like that, and certainly not for long. If we live for anything or anyone other than Christ, everything else is a shadow. It will not last. It's like building on sand. And when the storms of life come and come to us all they will, the house will fall. It has no solid foundation. I'm just being honest with you. The way of Christ is hard. You can go to many places and be told, come to Christ now, enjoy health and wealth and prosperity. We'll tell you the truth here. It costs to follow Christ. But he is so worth it. Peter knew that. Thomas Bilney knew that. Countless others down the generations have found the truth of that as well. If you are a Christian, 
and you want to be happy now, there's only one way. We sing it, don't we? Trust and obey. But there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Bilney, Peter, others are miserable when they don't do that. But what does this look like for us today? It means to be happy and fruitful in Christ. We trust and obey whatever we think or feel, whatever else we want to do, whatever we're scared of doing. And the Bible tells us what we are to do. Can I give you one practical application here? Some who profess to follow Christ have not been baptised. I'm not talking about people who've, who've got questions, you know, actively working through it. I'm not talking about those who have a, a different understanding in terms of pedo or child baptism and we're working through that. I'm talking about those who just don't feel they want to. They know what the Bible says, that we should be baptised. They'll say, I follow Christ, but for whatever reason, they're just choosing not to obey. Some are waiting for a feeling. Some an experience. Some, well, the time just isn't right. It's out of the comfort zone. I'd be embarrassed. Let these words from Mark 8, 38 sink in. Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Do you want to be happy and confident in your faith? Then trust and obey even when natural feelings are contrary to what we know we must do. That's what Peter learned. That's what he did right to the end. That's what me must do as well. And by the way, you know, as Greg goes deeper into 1 Peter, it'll help us to remember that when Peter's writing to persecuted Christians about how to go through suffering for Christ, how to stay faithful, he's not in an academic tower writing from a distance, postulating on different ways of doing these things. He writes knowing this is a path he himself will have to follow. Jesus told him, tradition tells us he was crucified upside down. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. A question for us all this morning is, are we willing to do so? Because if we're not, we'll always do it imperfectly. But if we're not willing, if we don't want to, it doesn't matter what experiences we enjoy, what feelings we have, what we say or do. We're on the wrong path. Do what is right. Let the experiences and feelings follow that. Be brave. Courage is not the absence of fear. We're all afraid of something. Courage is action in the face of fear. God will give us the grace. Peter showed that. Thomas Bilney showed that. Fifth point to note is that Peter, even after his restoration, was still a flawed man. And how many of us know that sanctification, this process of being made like Christ, is it's both a now and a not yet. Now we are sanctified. We are made holy by the blood of Christ. And we're being made holy by that transforming work of the Holy Spirit within us. It's not a complete work in any of us yet. Peter grew in so many ways, but he still made mistakes. He still sinned. In Galatians 2, Paul has to rebuke him for his hypocrisy. He'd been happy to eat and mix with the Gentiles, the non-Jews, until uh, senior Jewish officials came from church headquarters from James, and then he wasn't. Then he starts to pull back and disassociate for them. And he leads the other Jews into that kind of behavior as well, like hypocrisy. 
That's a big thing, by the way. That's not a small issue. That could have split the early church. It could have promoted the heresy of the Judaizers who wanted Christians to be trapped by legalism. Paul rightly saw the danger, and that's why he had to rebuke Peter publicly for his sin. So even the reinstated Peter was not the finished article, and neither are we. And neither, by the way, was Paul either. If you find yourself wrestling with sin, can I encourage you to read Romans chapter 7 from verse 14 and on into chapter 8. It's written by Paul. It is a beautifully honest account of that apostle's own ongoing battles with sin. This apostle writes this. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. In my mind, I serve the law of God. In my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There are some people who think this is Paul writing before he was a believer. I really don't think so. I think this is just a brutally honest account of the inward battles that we all have. This is an apostle still wrestling with sin, just like Peter had to. He knows he's saved. He still has assurance. He looks forward to his eternal reward. He has confidence. But he knows he's still in a fight. We all are. So it's not just you. If you're going through that. It's a common experience for us. We're all works in progress. But we're secure in Christ. The work one day will be completed. And our reward will be beyond our comprehension. You know, there's so much more we could look at when we think about Peter. How we became the de facto leader of the apostles. He's always named first when the Bible lists the apostles. Despite his flaws, he seems to have naturally had that leadership potential, that ability. We've seen how as a member of the, this inner circle of three of Christ's apostles, the one who made the great proclamation about Christ in today's reading, capable of great courage, but how he also knew fear, how he had strong faith, the only one apart from Jesus who walked on water, how his faith failed and he nearly drowned. We've seen something about why, about how this brave, passionate, dynamic, impetuous man who vacillated between the spiritual and the carnal sometimes was changed and used by God for great things. This is us as well, isn't it? We're capable of both. Peter did not let his imperfections stop him from serving God, from pressing on. And neither must we. And becoming increasingly conformed into the likeness of Christ. He changed, he learned, he grew, he matured in Christ. And so must we. He was restored as we need to be. You know, it's path worth, as we draw towards a close, it's worth mentioning just briefly one other point to bear in mind. So much about Peter changed as he went through this sanctification process. But you know, in a sense, he didn't change. His behavior and attitudes changed, but he never lost that drive, that tendency to an action-minded approach. That was how God had made him. We're all different even as Christians, we're not, and we're not meant to be a kind of mindless mass of clones, all identical and the same, alike in every respect. A bit like the Borg, for those who watch Star Trek. You know, a collective that directs everything, and that's it. Unthinking members. <coughs> there is much that unites us in Christ. But God created us different. The church is a body with different parts. We need each other. We need each other to be different. 1 Corinthians 12 is a great confirmation of that. So follow him and serve him as he created you to do.
If you're task-focused, serving by fulfilling good tasks, holy tasks. If you're process-focused, use that gift to serve him. Serve him however he's created you to be, but do go on and serve him. And finally, above everything, and if you remember nothing else from this morning, remember this. Love the Lord. Love him. I hope you're encouraged by what God did through this flawed apostle. Peter knew failure. He made choices that marred his relationship with the Lord. But you know, he never stopped loving him. Even at his very lowest point, when Christ is restoring him, when he denied even knowing Jesus, when he was a broken man. In John 21, Jesus asked him three times, Simon, you know the name of Simon there, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times he replies, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. I don't know what battles with sin most of you are facing, what failures you have to live with. We each have our own. But I do know this. There is complete forgiveness and healing in Christ. I know that whatever we have done, the Lord can and most assuredly will forgive and restore and use us if we will love him and trust him and turn to him. Not only can we all be useful to Christ, we are commanded to be so. Just like Peter, the brilliant, dynamic, action-minded, flawed apostle, the human author of the letter that Greg is going to take us through.